I thank you. Good seeing everyone this morning. I want us to open our Bibles to Mark's Gospel, chapter 14. And uh, we want to consider the topic this morning, the company of the denied. And it's coming from Mark's Gospel, chapter 14, in verses 36 through 42. And it uh, just kind of flows in well with uh, the past uh, messages of recent weeks where we have been touching on, uh, I think, subjects that capture our hearts, that really touch us in uh, places that uh, we don't uh, feel comfortable expressing to other people people whenever we have sense uh, feelings of inadequacy, inferiority complexes, uh, other emotional states that uh, really that we think are somehow counter to our faith. And so we have gotten those out there and talking about those things. And this morning is certainly no different because we all have uh, periods in life where we wonder why God doesn't do something. And we think that somehow it's a, a less than a faithful expression when we talk about our frustration with God, uh, God's uh, seemingly uh, lack of responsiveness, his uh, appearance of silence, and uh, how we struggle uh, with those times in our life. And I think recently, and even in the past 48 hours, uh, we think of the world and humanity as crying out to God when we have seen such a display in the past 48 hours of unmitigated evil and uh, just indiscriminate killing, uh, just a lack of appreciation for, the hum for humanity. And uh, so I'm sure that uh, globally people are crying out to God. And uh, the truth is, is that as we look back on our faith journey, uh, you're going to discover that uh, whether young or old, uh, the young will find it to be true, the old will acknowledge it to be true, that your greatest seasons of growth in your faith journey will be those times in your life where you have gone through the crucible of hardship. When you're young in the faith, you think you're going to grow in your faith as you study your Bible, as you pray, as you practice those disciplines. And those things are certainly necessary in our life. I'm not diminishing those uh, in any form or fashion and their necessity. Uh, if we are to grow in our understanding of the faith, our understanding of what it is to be the people of God, the call of God that has been placed upon our life. But when it comes to your maturity in the faith, and the growth of your confidence and trust in God. That is going to be, as you look back, there's going to be markers in your life that you will say were significant periods of growth. And I assure you that most often it's going to be times of hardship. Probably the most challenging seasons in your life. And the irony is, is that when you were in those periods, the reason you grew was because you were crying out to God, asking God to intervene, asking God to do something, but God said no. God said no. And your prayers weren't even selfish. That's what made it all the more frustrating for you. Is that these were not selfish prayers. These were not self-serving prayers. This, this wasn't about you trying to acquire uh, using God as some kind of jack-in-the-box. That if you wind him up and say, uh, in the name of Jesus, with, right, with just the right inflection, that you will get all the offerings of this world. No, these were selfless prayers that you have offered, that I have offered on behalf of others. Things where someone perhaps... I think over the past 40 years of being a minister of the gospel, just the number of times interceding for someone, a 33-year-old mother, 
a five-year-old, an eight-year-old child, that 33-year-old mother dying of cancer. It didn't seem too much to ask of God that he might spare this, this young mother's life, that this family will not have to go through this. A young couple starting their marriage, when one is tragically killed in, in a car wreck and, and, and praying, praying before, uh, the, before death was pronounced, praying that God would heal that, that young mother, that young husband's body. Single mom with a 10-year-old child, a motorcycle accident, severe head trauma, praying for that child that this mother wouldn't have to face this and go through that. But on each of those occasions, and so many more like them. God, for reasons that my mind cannot comprehend, God said no. God said no. Now, for some, those are occasions, those times in life when you face something like that, or probably the reality is to even lesser degree than those examples I just gave. Many will use those as an, as an excuse to walk away from the faith completely. Well, God, see, God's not who he says he is. No, God is who he says he is. He's just not who you thought he was. But many will use those occasions as an opportunity to walk away, throw away their faith completely, while others who cling to their faith who choose to be a people of hope, they see this as a definable moment. Because you see, in each of those occasions, as a pastor and personally in my own life, it's in seasons like that where I, I realize I had wrongly understood God. Well, we all, by nature, we want to define God, the nature and character of God, by our, by our own wants and our desires. And then when the wheels fall off of life and you cry out to God, the answer is no. Well, you realize that I have wrongly interpreted and understood God. So it's a moment that is definable, more especially it is redefinable. You realize you're having to redefine your understanding of the nature and the character of God as he is revealed and made known in Scripture, not according to my own wants and desires. You see, that's the turning point in the life of faith when we each one begin pursuing the God who is instead of the God we want. I'll be honest with you. Forty years as a minister of the gospel, praying to God, asking God to intercede on behalf of others, to spare them to pain. I'll admit and confess to you that God has said no far more than yes. Now, some people are hesitant to talk about that. Some people are hesitant to say that because they think that it puts God in some kind of indefensible position that God answers no more than he does yes. I don't see it at all that way. Instead of being so consumed with why God said no, I, I think it, for me, I, I see the greatest miracle is that God answers it all. And I'm an, I'm an imperfect father. I was an imperfect father for my, for my children. And as parents, we're all haunted by the fact, just think about it from earthly terms, we're all haunted by the fact that as a parent, 
you probably have said no more to your children than you've said yes. That used to bother me. I just noticed that when my kids were little, I, I was always in a no. A, a, it seemed like I was just in a no mode. No, don't do that. No, you can't have that. No, you don't. No, no. And I thought, man, I, you know, I, I want to become more deliberate about saying yes. I would like to be a dad that says yes. And I'll tell you, there were times where I said yes when I should not have said yes. Okay, I'll, I'll get you that if you promise you'll quit crying. I should have said no. I mean, I think about my own childhood. You know, you'd start crying over something silly like that. You know, my, my parents was response, hey, I'll give you something to cry about. Not giving me something to get me to quit crying. And I'm an imperfect father, but I see things are out of balance. I said no far more than I said yes. Now, why is that? And before we feel guilty for doing that, you need to step back and take a bigger look at the picture. You're smarter than they are. You know more than they do. No, in, in your household, your child, your child's opinion should not have the same weight as yours. You're smarter. You're better educated. You have more life experience. As a parent, you recognize that every want of this little child, it's driven by selfishness. They're self-absorbed. They're self-centered. And yet, you as a parent, you're trying to raise up a child that is not self-centered, that is not self-absorbed, that you're trying to raise a child that sees themselves as someone that can contribute to humanity and participate, offer something to the greater narrative of community. And so to do that, we end up saying no, more, no. You're driven by selfishness. And I'm going to say no because I'm trying to take you to a place that you don't yet understand because you think like a child. Now, if I as an imperfect father recognize that, that I've said no far more than I've said yes so that I might get my children to a different place, our Father in heaven is perfect. And the difference is our Father in heaven doesn't acquiesce like most of us fathers do, saying yes to things that we should not say yes to. Our Father doesn't, our Heavenly Father doesn't say yes when the answer is no. He doesn't just shrug his shoulder, well, okay, this one time, go ahead. That's not our Heavenly Father. He is a perfect Heavenly Father. He's smarter than we are. He has a plan that is bigger than anything we have ever imagined. And so I've found that the father is saying no and no and no time and time again because he's trying to get me to a place and a trust and a confidence and a belief in him that I would never arrive to if he always said yes. And yes, even to the most noble of my request. If you're honest, as I've sought to be honest with you, you would have to admit that God has said no to you more than he has said yes to your petitions. And that's okay. I hope that doesn't rattle you to the core. But if it does, that's okay. Because this could be for you this morning a, a definable moment where you might finally understand and 
come to a place where you have to redefine your understanding of the nature and the character of God. Something that is fashioned by God's word and not just your human wants, desires, and selfish needs. It's okay that God has said no because you know what it has done? It has made you part of a wonderful community. You are now a part of a group known as the company of the denied. And I want you to know you're in good company. You're a part of a unique group that even the Apostle Paul is a member. I mean, if God said no to Paul, I mean, of all people, I mean, Paul just requested, Lord, this, this thorn in the flesh. He prayed three times. Would you remove it? No, my, my grace is sufficient for you. No. My grace will keep you humble. My no will keep you humble. My no will keep you trusting in me instead of the strength of your flesh in the innate abilities that, that you have. And if God was saying no to Paul, I feel a little bit better when God is saying no to me. Our text this morning is an occasion, the worst of moments in the life of Jesus, when he too became a member of the company of the denied, where even his heavenly father said no. Verse 32, Mark 14, they came to a place named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here until I have prayed. And he took with him Peter, James, and John and became very distressed and troubled. It's a word similar to what Jesus has said to his disciples back when he was talking about suffering and death. He, he could tell that, that this wasn't sitting well with his disciples. And John records it this way in John 14, 1. Jesus said to his, to his disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. Same word here. I can tell you're agitated, distressed, and troubled by this. And now it's an experience that Jesus himself is having. He's greatly distressed. He's, he's troubled. Verse 34, and he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. And he went a little beyond them and fell to the ground and began praying that if it were possible, this hour might pass him by. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. The cup represents destiny. The cup represents responsibility. The cup represents obedience. More specifically, the cup represents death. He's already had a conversation with James and John where they were haggling over who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom, who's going to sit at the right and the left hand of God. Jesus said, you don't know, you don't know what you're asking. You don't know the implications of this. Can you drink from the cup from which I drink? Can you drink from the cup of death? Can you drink from the cup of burden and responsibility that comes with, with being my follower? And so now as we hear Jesus in the garden, he is distressed, he is troubled, he is grieving. I mean, to the point that, that, he, is, that he is 
you know, prostrated himself. How do we reconcile the no of God? If Paul heard God saying no to his petition, if Jesus himself heard God saying no to his petition, how do we reconcile these in our own life, in our own faith journey, our own faith experience? Well, the first thing that, that I would offer in regard to God's no and using Jesus, the example of Jesus, and his responsiveness to this, that God's no stirs within us, God's no stirs a lamenting trust. Those are not contradictory. But God's no stirs within us when we have this experience, as Jesus is having this experience, it stirs within us a lamenting trust. It says in verse 33, again, and he took with him Peter, James, and John and began to be very distressed and troubled. Now that word that has been translated, very distressed and troubled, it's a, it's a unique word that has been chosen by, by Mark because it, it captures, for the reader and the hearer and for us, it captures the greatest possible degree of horror and suffering. The greatest degree that you can imagine in your mind of suffering and horror. That is the emotional state of Jesus in this passage of Scripture. Now, I know when we hear these things and we read and we hear about Jesus wanting to, uh, that the hour might pass him, or we hear the prayer of Jesus there in verse 36, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. When we see Jesus shrinking back from what he has been called to do, from what he knows his destiny is to die for all humanity, to fulfill the redemptive purposes of God, it makes, a, it makes a great many uncomfortable to see, to see Jesus shrinking back as he, as he does. Some are startled. Because with their religious background, you know, I think that many people think that, that Jesus should have entered into this. They would have expected that Jesus would have entered into this season of suffering in his life, the passion event, that Jesus would have entered into this stoically. Stiff upper lip. That's what a man of faith does. Keep a stiff upper lip in, in all circumstances. That's what, that, that's what faith does. Jesus doesn't enter into this stoically. He enters into it biblically. He enters into it reflecting something that is very much biblical, something that is very much prevalent among the people of God in their seasons of hardship. He enters into it with great lament, pouring himself out to God, his emotional state, his sense of being, his sense of suffering, his sense of, of fear, his sense of, of anxiety. You see how he prayed i mean we, we we see him falling to the ground and praying which was uh, which was unusual i mean yes being prostrated in prayer we see it often in in the new testament but by the new testament the most prevalent position and i'm not trying to prescribe one position of prayer as as somehow being the best one 
But by the New Testament, the most prevalent posture of prayer was standing and lifting one's arms to the, to the Father and praying aloud. But here Jesus is, he's, he's laying on the ground. It's not, unlike, it's not unlike David in 2 Samuel chapter 12 and verse 16. We're there, we see David, he's grieving over, over the possible death of this son, this child that was born to Bathsheba, the widow of Uriah the Hittite. This one with whom David has, has had a child, and now this child is sick unto death and would die in seven days. But here is David, he's, he is pouring himself out, he, he, he is lamenting. Oh, you don't think for a moment he wanted his circumstances to change? So to see Jesus here and, and the extent of his, of his suffering, we know in Luke 22, Jesus, Luke in describing Jesus' state, emotional state, uh, he said that, that his duress, his physiological duress was of, of such a degree that his sweat became drops of blood. It's a physiological phenomenon that can occur. That's the duress that, that he was experiencing in, in his life. And so Jesus is simply here following, I want us to see in the text that he's following a, a well-known pattern here of, of lament that is found in, in the Psalms. Two-thirds of the Psalter just, of, are, they're laments. Individuals, people of God pouring themselves out because of the burdens of life, the inequities of life, the hardships of life that are, pre, that are prevailing over them. And listen, these lamenting prayers like Jesus is offering and the lamenting prayers of the psalm, listen, these are not well-measured prayers. I mean, these are not eloquent, you know, King James Version, you know, flowing words and eloquence and well-measured words that are polite in nature. Those are not lamenting prayers at all. Oh, you'll see no strain of politeness. Whenever you go back and read the laments of Scripture. In the laments, as Jesus is lamenting, there, there's great emotion. A lot of complaining against God. A great deal of recrimination against God. It's pouring oneself out upon the proverbial altar. And what I would have us to understand is that in these lamenting prayers, when someone is openly, transparently pouring themselves out upon this altar of despair in their emotional state, these prayers are not, these are not prayers of disobedience. These are not prayers that, that are insubordinate in nature. But these lamenting prayers, what I want us to recognize is that they exude great trust in God that a child of God can be that open with their heavenly father that they can pour themselves out with great accusation and complaint and emotion because of the circumstances of life it exudes trust in God it's what Jesus is doing. He's exuding, even in his pain, he's exuding trust in God. That God cares, that God is present, 
that God is near, that God listens. And yes, sometimes even God grants requests that can be reconciled with his providential purposes. It's always a possibility. The trust even in his lamenting, the trust that Jesus shows in just his prayers. Oh, you can see it in his, his use of the word Abba, Father, Daddy. is really the familiar term. And it's unfortunate. I've always heard through the years some pastors, some teachers that will say, you know, this, this idea of Daddy, uh, of closeness to God and intimacy with God, that was unknown to the Hebrews, to the Jewish people. That, uh, that simply is not supported in scholarly literature. The Hebrews, the Jewish people, always had a sense of connectedness, always a sense of intimacy with God, that God was their father. But what is unique in what Jesus is doing is that there is such a closeness, such an intimacy that he uses a term like daddy. It's not foreign. It's just that the uniqueness of Jesus' relationship with the father is of such intimacy this is his comfortable appeal with his daddy he's lamenting our lord is hurting he's, he's concerned about what how all this is going to unfold There's some stress some anxiety but in his lamenting he exudes great trust in the Father. Secondly, what I would want us to consider in God's know and considering God's know in our life is that it does create an anxious waiting. We've certainly seen that, this idea of an anxious waiting whenever we are going through this crucible of hardship and we have sensed God saying no in the midst of this. And he was saying, verse 36, and he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. In other words, Lord, Father, Abba, Daddy, let, let's explore the boundaries. Let's explore. Can we not explore further? The, uh, the, what are the limits and the bounds of your providential purposes? I mean, is death absolutely necessary? Are there not other ways that, that perhaps this could be fulfilled without me dying? I mean, what 33-year-old wants to die? Human nature is to fight, to live, to live at all costs. And it does help us to appreciate all the more the sacrifice, knowing how badly we would want to live and not die. It helps us to appreciate all the more the sacrifice that Jesus, in fact, experienced. But the real test that he is experiencing now, the very real test, is the psychological torment of waiting. The psychological torment of waiting. Jesus knows that it is de his destiny to die. He has known that from the beginning. He has said to his disciples, it is appointed in the Son of Man to suffer and to die. And, his, and, his, and as he's praying, Jesus knows that, that his is not going to be a deliverance from death, but rather it's going to be a deliverance through death and a resurrection. He knows that. 
we know that. Do we not? But there is anxiety. There is stress in waiting. We've been there. I mean, there, there's different kinds of stress. There's different kinds of, of waiting that we have to experience in life. It's just part of, of life. There, there's waiting that is inconvenience that is inconvenient there's waiting that uh, that's uncomfortable you know when when you're waiting to give a report at school a presentation well, there's some anxiety about that uh, you know waiting to preach a sermon you know waking up for the past you know 35 years you know three o'clock two o'clock on Sunday morning every hour on the hour just waiting for this moment to get here you know, once you get up, I'm fine, you know, having done it so well. But, but still, there's those butterflies. There's that waiting that I, that I dislike. It's just uncomfortable. I don't like it. But while there is a, a waiting that is uncomfortable, there is a waiting that alters. That's what we have here, a waiting that alters, alters the course of life. So waiting, sitting in a doctor's office, waiting for him to walk in with the biopsy result. There is the waiting to hear the prognosis. There is a waiting to hear about the treatment plan. There is a waiting to hear about whether the tumor is shrinking or not. There is a waiting that will bring either the continuation of life or death. And that's what Jesus is dealing with here. It is an intense, it is as an intense and poignant moment that we will ever have in our human experience this idea of just waiting. This kind of waiting, it alters. Waiting for the one that's going to come betray you. Waiting for the nails to be driven in. Waiting to be whipped. Waiting to be crucified. Waiting to see if the Father can be trusted and there will be a resurrection. Just waiting. And Jesus even here is using it as a teachable moment for his disciples because I need you to watch. See, the watch is waiting. And when Jesus tells his disciples here to watch, he's not saying, I want you to watch and look for a way of escape. I want you to watch so that we can, so that we can fight back when, the, uh, when this band shows up. No, he wants them to watch because he wants them to understand that these are definable moments. That God is at work in ways that you never imagined. That's why he would have us to watch daily. The hour is near. See, that's what he's trying, that's what he wants to avoid if it's at all possible. The hour, verse 35, he wants the hour to pass him by. You see, all of his ministry, he's been talking about the hour. The hour will come when the Son of Man, the hour will come when the kingdom of God, time and time again, he's been talking about this hour. Jesus wants his disciples to understand, us to understand the importance of the moments. Even in our crises, in the crises of the world, there's an hour that is coming, but you got to watch, you got to wait. 
Because if you're not in a waiting, in a watching mindset, you're not going to pray. You're going to fall asleep. Falling asleep means you have no expectation of God doing something. But a person who watches and waits, they know that this is not the end. They know that God is acting, that God is writing this narrative that, that will go far beyond this uncomfortable moment. Which brings us to a final thing we must consider in dealing with God's no. And that is that God's no presents a defining choice. God's no presents a defining choice. That last clause in verse 36, having asked that this cup would be removed from him, Jesus says, yet not what I will, but what you will. Yet not what I will. I wish this cup would pass. I wish this hour would pass me by. I wish, Father, that within your providential, the boundaries of your providential purposes, I would prefer that it not involve my death. Yet. Your translation may have the word nevertheless. I personally like nevertheless the best. I think nevertheless is the best conjunction in the English language to portray faith. I wish this would go away. But nevertheless, your will be done. Daniel to Nebuchadnezzar, we will not bow down to your graven image. For our God will deliver us. But if he doesn't, nevertheless, we will not bow down. There is no more powerful word in the English language for a person of faith than this word used by Jesus, nevertheless. Because it's a word that highlights that in the, in the journey of faith, in the life of faith, living it out and portraying it, you are not a victim, but you are a victor. Jesus didn't see himself as a victim in the divine narrative of God. He didn't. In John's gospel, John records this. Jesus said this. In John 10, verse 17 and 18, for this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life. See, Jesus is one, as a victor, he takes action. Now, the action that he is going to take is for the purpose of others acting upon him. Because I lay down my life so that I may take it back. Jesus is the active agent. No one is taking it away from me, but I lay it down on my own. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it back. This commandment I received from my Father. You see, Jesus here, um, this was Jesus taking the initiative. When Jesus says here in our text, nevertheless, Father, nevertheless, I want the cup to pass. Nevertheless. That's Jesus taking the initiative to move from the place and the appearance of being a victim to, in fact, being a victor. And what Jesus did, you and I can do as well. It's an attitude 
that moves you from victim mentality to a victor in reality. Victor Frankl is a famous name, survivor of the Holocaust. In writing about his Holocaust experience, Victor Frankl said, wrote, that of all the human freedoms that are stripped of a person in a concentration camp, the one freedom that can never be taken from you is how to respond. It's how to respond. Regardless of the circumstances, you can always make a choice. You can make a decision. Frankel said, I chose to not be a victim. I chose to be a human. And so on, they, on those days when they gave to us the most paltry of a rationing, always saved part of it to give it to a neighbor, to give it to someone else. Because I wanted to be human and not be a victim. You see, therein lies the, di the difference. Victims think they have no choice. Victims think they have no options. And you do. And we do. And your option and your choice is nevertheless. Oh, I'd like those circumstances to go away. I wish someone could be healed. I wish someone's marriage could be restored. I wish this person's disease would go away. Nevertheless, it's a choice that you make. And it will determine whether you go through life as a victim or a victor. Let's pray together. Our Father, how grateful we are that you allow us to be transparent in our feelings and our emotions. That we need not go through life pretending that we are not emotional creatures. That uh, we're grateful we don't have to go through life with a stiff upper lip of stoicism. But that we can pour ourselves out upon your altar of grace and mercy. Knowing that you're a God who near, that is near, that you're a God who cares, that you're a God who listens, that you're a God who desires the best for his children. A best that oftentimes run counter, that often runs counterintuitive to a life that this world presents to us. And so, Father, I pray that as we go out into a despairing world, that the world might see in our life, that the world might see in our witness. A nevertheless kind of faith, a nevertheless kind of faith that anticipates the continuation of your story, the story of salvation and deliverance, a story of renewal, a story of a new heaven and a new earth. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. And as we stand to be dismissed this morning, I offer to you this blessing from Jude verse 24 and 25 now to him who is able to protect you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless and with great joy 
to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. God bless you. Go in peace.